taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Especially in these trying times, we, we, we just, in the world, we just need to be able to see God's joy in this. And we've been praying that uh, this may this podcast may inspire you to engage friends and family around you with conversations that point to Jesus. Well, folks, let's welcome the man that looks spiffy in his suit and tie, Brian Chilton. <laughs> Actually, I have a t-shirt and shorts on, so does that work? <laughs> we had that was fantastic i i enjoyed every bit of that um, absolutely i did you know, too uh, ryan paulie is is such a wonderful man he's he's a he's a good guy and and i enjoy uh, enjoyed talking with him and having that time and conversation with him we, we had a good uh after party show or after show party i guess yeah. you'd say because we were on the online through uh, facebook messenger and chatting quite a bit and as you say he's just a great guy he really is that's good. So tonight, the topic is logic. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into that, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So um, logic is something that all of us use. Um, and um, it, quite honestly, we, we, we've, we spoke a little last week about, um, a little about philosophy. We, we, we made the mention that you know, people, a lot of people don't know how to think well anymore. Uh, as we talk about philosophy, philosophical issues, and things of this nature. And a lot of times people don't know how to think well because they've never been trained how to think well. And, and, and when we talk about thinking well, we're talking about the field of logic. And um, I, want to, I want us to present some truths today that if, if you can master these things, they're very simple things, quite honestly, and they date back to Socrates. In fact, it's called Socratic logic. It doesn't use the, all the symbols. I think that's called Boolean logic, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Socratic logic is, is is fairly simple and forthright. Now, it can get complicated, no doubt about it. It can get complicated, but... Uh, such is life. I mean, time you get go deeper into anything, you know, there there are complications. It gets deeper, gets strong, you know, uh, uh, more intense, more uh, the, the more you dig into anything. But you don't have to necessarily have all those deep uh, aspects of logic, Socratic logic, down pat to be able to think through things and to test uh, certain truth claims to see whether or not something's true. And Curtis, this is especially important in our time. Because we're yeah. bombarded with information, uh, we're bombarded yeah. with the classic tag phrase "fake news," and yeah. it's not always easy to decipher what the truth from from what's false. And uh, right. so, I think well, in our in our culture today, um, in our culture today, truth is actually a moving target because we've made it that way. Where oh yeah, you know they, you know so. 
And, and I, I won't have to go ahead and tell you, um, normally uh, I, I would be in Lynchburg this week uh, because I, I've actually have an intensive go- ongoing. And uh, but we've we've been able to have the intensive. It's been a different format. We've done it through um, uh, online uh, through Microsoft Teams. We've met uh, for about uh, uh, gosh, what was it? about five six hours a day uh, Monday through Thursday, and then we'll do a half a day tomorrow, about three hours tomorrow. Uh, but it's been with Dr. Dave Baggett. He's getting ready to head out to uh, Houston Baptist University, and I hate so much that Liberty's losing him. But I say all that, he's just a genius of a man, sweet fellow too. But I say all that to say my brain is really fried this week. So <laughs> bear with me. If I don't make sense, please interject and let me know if something needs to be clarified uh, because I, I am uh, my brain is running on fumes <laughs> right now. So we'll try to get through this the best we can today. So I guess, first of all, we need to talk about, uh, and by the way, a lot of the information we're presenting today can be found in uh, the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. The first unit, in fact, deals with the issues of logic, so I do encourage you, if you haven't got your copy, uh, to go get a copy of that book. And uh, it, it, again, it presents this information in, in, a, in a fairly straightforward uh, uh Methodology. So, uh, if again, though, and there may be certain terms that people come across, they're not, they've never heard it before, and so it may be intimidating, uh, e- even with a layman's manual. So, uh, it's it's funny, you know, Curtis, because I, I met some people who said that uh, it was uh, the book was too complicated in some in parts, and then I heard other people saying, well, the book was too simple in some parts. So, I, I, it's kind of a relative uh, fashion, you know, depending on where people are. But the thing about right. it is, is I tell anybody, whether it comes to philosophy, theology, uh, logic, or whatever, if you want to learn it, you can learn it. And so right. uh, that's what I'd share with everyone. So first of right. all, we talk about syllogisms, and this is one of those million-dollar words. Syllogism, and a syllogism is basically a logical argument that consists of two premises or statements and one conclusion. Um so, for instance, um, I give you I give you an example of a good argument, and, and we'll, we'll we'll come back and examine this a little bit later on. The Kalam cosmological argument that William Lane Craig uses. Uh, so the first two premises are: premise one is everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's the first truth statement. Uh, the second truth statement is the universe began to exist. So those are the two premises. And so with the syllogism, the conclusion would be, therefore, the universe has a cause. It's drawing from the information from the two previous statements to bring forth a conclusion. Okay, so um, that's the way syllogisms work. Two truth statements and then a conclusion that's brought forth from the two truth statements uh, entwined together. So... One of the big questions is, how do we evaluate arguments? How do we test these syllogisms to see whether they're true or not? And, you know, Curtis, you and I started, in fact, part of our conversation going into logic was based on the first step, uh, defining your terms. Right. And it's important. Yeah, we we talked about that a lot last week with, with Ryan Pauley. You know, taking the moment to actually define our terms um, actually allows us to be able to target and speak into 
or uh, find what each other are meaning so we come to a common ground. Exactly, and, and I want to give you, so, so when we come to these logical arguments, the first thing we have to do is ask the question, and this is true with anything in life, what do you mean by that? So when we talk about, uh, for instance, the universe in the Kalam cosmological argument, what's meant by the universe? Well, it, it, the universe is all of the material world that we know, the universe, the space, uh, galaxies, everything in the material world in space and time. Uh, then you can ask the question about existence. And then one of the key things on this uh, argument is the fact that he says begins to exist. So he, he's not saying necessarily that everything has a cause, and he did that intentionally because people would say, well, who caused God? Well, God didn't wasn't caused to exist. He didn't begin to exist. So he says right. anything that begins to exist has a cause, and there's a reason why he uses language like that. Now, the language in the Kalam is pretty clear, but let me give you an example of someone who uses very unclear language. And that's a guy, he's, a, he's an atheist uh, cosmologist by the name of Lawrence Krauss. Um, Lawrence Krauss wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing. And he argues that it is possible for, for universes to pop into existence from nothingness. But Curtis, here's why it's important to define the terms. The nothingness he re- references is not really nothing as we understand right. it philosophically. The right. nothing he is talking about is a quantum vacuum, which is a physical thing that has physical properties and a physical process. So he's not saying, he's really not arguing that, uh, he uses a sleight of hand, I think, and I think he does this intentionally. Uh, you, you know, I, I, well, At least I, I, I assume he does. I, I don't know the man's heart. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe he didn't. But the nothingness he references, and he's even said this on on uh, interviews and things of this nature. The in- nothingness he refers is a quantum vacuum itself. So again, he doesn't understand nothing in the book the way we understand nothing, meaning no thing, non-existence. So right. that's a good example. Another example. Is like what we were talking about last week with the whole aspect of evolution, evolution being proven, macro, micro, uh, micro evolution has been proven, uh, but that's talking about the adaptation of, of things uh, right. within a species. Macro evolution, I think there's a lot of argument out there to say that it hasn't been proven because it's talking right. about one species transforming into another species. That yeah, a has change a, of kind. Exactly, a change of kind. So so it's very important to un- define the terms and asking the question, as Greg Kokel would say, what do you mean by that? Right. Yeah. And the second thing we want to do is to test the statements. Test the truth statements. And, and ask ourselves, are these questions true or are they false? So, for instance, going back to the Kalam argument... Uh, he says everything that begins to exist has a cause. I think we could. I think would agree. Could agree to that. Uh, that if yeah. something begins to exist, then it has a cause. Things don't just pop into pop into existence from from nothing. I mean, right. you know, in opposite of what Krauss <laughs> was arguing. 
uh, there's a reason for something being as it is. And so you could test the, the statement, the universe began to exist. Um, it's interesting that some people, up until uh, a few centuries ago, some people believed that the universe was eternal. But the evidence shows otherwise. In fact, this was a very uncomfortable thing that Einstein understood, that uh, that the universe did have a beginning. And he was, you know, I heard he was uncomfortable because of the, the conclusions that it leads to the fact that there is a divine I mean he believed in a God but it was a it wasn't necess, it wasn't the God of the Bible it was a it was right. a kind of a deistic type of God a, a Spinoza's type of God you may say yeah. but so you can test the two tr- truth statements so it, everything that begins to exist has a cause we could say yes that's a true statement the universe began to exist that's a true statement. So this leads us to the final step in evaluating truth claims. Evaluate the argument. Going in, looking at the Kalam, we could say, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's true. The universe began to exist. That's true. So the conclusion says, therefore, the universe has a cause. Well, when you evaluate, evaluate an argument, the argument is either valid or invalid. So right. since the truth claims are true, the statements are clear, the conclusion follows from the truth statements as they're presented. So we could say that this was a valid argument. Uh, the Kalam cosmological would be a valid argument. Another valid argument would be the moral argument, uh, which says if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Now, this would... There would be some argumentation in the philosophical world about this, but I think most people would agree that if there are objective moral values, uh, or if there are not objective moral values, then then we we live in a godless creation. The second statement says objective moral values do exist, which the conclusion stemming from that is that therefore God exists. So... This shows that if there are objective moral values, it points to an objective moral lawgiver, which would be God. So on pages 29 and 30 through 30, I give some bad uh, bad arguments. For instance, on page 29, there's an argument that says, All birds have wings. Cardinals have wings. Therefore, cardinals are birds. Okay. There, there's a problem with with this argument. All birds have wings. That's the first premise. Cardinals have wings. That's the second premise. Uh, therefore, um, cardinal, cardinals are birds. Um, well, actually, I tell you what. Let me, let me go on to the next one. Um, there's another one I use here. Uh, an oak has. This is this is a better one to examine. An oak has leaves. Leaves are grass. Therefore, oaks are grass. Okay, th- this has this has a problem. What would we say the problem would be here? Um, well, well, leaves aren't grass. Exactly. So we automatically note that the second uh, the second statement is false. So we don't even have to go f- any further in our, in our in our presentation because we know the conclusion right. doesn't follow because right. one of the statements is false. So. Um, that, that's problematic there. Another one we use, is, for instance, I use myself in one of these arguments. Brian Chilton is a man. Brian Chilton is short. Therefore, all men are short. Okay. Well, you and I are. 
Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> we are. But yeah. is that necessarily true for everyone? And, and, and the important thing so, here... So, go, go ahead, so, I'm sorry. So, so, in the first one, you're describing the that, that the premise, the second premise is false, therefore leading to the conclusion being false. The first and second premise in your second statement are true but the but the conclusion is false so it's how you deducted that reasoning right yeah absolutely in 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 socrates and i really didn't um put this on here but i think it's important to, to note he had four words and i don't remember the words and we're in the process of moving so this book i packed was is packed up but uh it's it's kind of like four vowels a e i o and, and he talks about uh, A and E. A is like the positive universal claim, saying um, everyone loves Snicker bars. Uh, the next one would be a universal negative. No one likes Snicker bars. Um, then the next two are, are partial. So, so some people like Snicker bars. Uh, that would be the I. And then the O would be that some people don't like Snicker bars. So the problem with this argument is that it goes from a particular person, mainly me, to making an argument for everyone based on a situation that I have going on in my life being vertically challenged. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is vertically challenged. So in this case, if you notice the argument, it's talking about one person, but in the conclusion, it brings in everybody from evaluating one person so we can see the problem in that. Let me give you an example. I saw in a newspaper that nothing against Massachusetts near Massachusetts, I have who live in Massachusetts. But there was a there was an article uh, in our in our local newspaper that said that North Carolina had one of the lowest rated school systems in the nation. But the highest rated school system was found in Massachusetts. Now I noticed something in this study, when they when they evaluated North Carolina, they tested a hundred percent of the schools. However, when they evaluated Massachusetts, they only tested fifteen percent of the schools in the state. So there's a problem there. So it's not a fair analysis to gauge fifteen percent of the best schools in one state and 100% of the schools in another state, and then say that the 15% of the schools in the one state is better than the 100% in the other state, because it may very well have been that they took the 15% of the best schools in that state in comparison to the all the schools in North Carolina. So there's an unfair assessment in that. And right. this is where I warn people that you need to be careful with statistics. Uh, statistics can tell us a lot of good things, but make sure that there is a fair test going on. Like, for instance, in this case, they only tested 15% of the best schools in one state and 100% of the schools in another state. So these are the type of things we have to, the details that we have to watch out for. As the old cliche goes, the devil's in the details, and so often that's the case. stuff absolutely so we see the different arguments uh, that's used there and then we see 
three Socratic laws of logic. Um, and this is pretty much common sense. Uh, and this is on page, what was it, I think 25? 20, 25, yep. 25 and 26. 25 and 26 of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. The, the law of identity, in fact, uh, in the state of North Carolina, there's the football team, the Carolina Panthers. We had a coach uh, down here uh, years ago by the name of John Fox. And um, I think he's coaching up in, or was coaching in Chicago. I'm not sure where he is now. But when the when the Panthers lost a game, he he had a famous saying he would always say, it is what it is. That's what he would say. Well, that's kind of what the law, that is what the law of identity is, that something is as it's known. Uh, a thing's identity is that which is, constitutes its essence. So if you say there's an oak tree in the front yard, you can be assumed that you're talking about a, a large uh, plant with leaves, bark, and, and leaves. Um, it can be assumed that that's what you're talking about because we know what an oak tree is. So the law of identity basically says that something is as it actually exists in space and time. The, the law of non-contradiction holds that a thing can't be what it is and is not. So right. something, something can't be one thing and, and claim to be something else. This isn't popular to say in our time. <laughs> you know, right. But, but this is the law of non-contradiction. You can't be something that you're not. So I could tell everybody that I'm a dolphin. I'm a bottlenose dolphin. But looking at me and realizing the fact that I can't swim, a person quickly knows that I'm not a bottlenose dolphin. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a human being. Okay, so the law of non-contradiction says that something either is or it isn't. And the law of excluded middle is a final law of logic, which says that it has to be one or the other. For instance, I give an example of, uh, of an instance that happened to me in elementary school. Uh, there, there was another guy by the name of Brian Chilton. Believe it or not, there are two of us. Wow. <laughs> it's a scary thought, I know. But uh, I, I was called into the principal's office one time, and, and, and they asked me about something that had happened uh, in, in the gym at a certain time. And I hadn't been in the gym at that time, and I knew absolutely nothing about what they were talking about. And they asked me what my name was, and I told, told them Brian Chilton. And they asked me, are you... And, and the, the other Brian went, had an, another initial. My initial was Brian G. Chilton. He had another initial associated with his name. So they called, it, it, they said, isn't your name? And they called the other person's name. And I said, no, I'm Brian G. Chilton. So I couldn't be me and be that other person. They were looking for one particular person, and I wasn't the one they were looking for at that time. Now, I can't say that other times they weren't looking for me. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they were. <laughs> you know. But in that particular instance, they were looking for somebody else. So three laws of logic. Something is what it is. It can't both be and not be, and it has to be either one thing or the other. It can't be both. So when we talk about Jesus risen from the dead, he can't both be risen from the dead and not risen from the dead. Either he is risen from the dead or he's not risen from the dead. And if he is risen from the dead, then people who say that he's not risen from the dead are wrong. We don't like saying that today. But it's, but it's true. If, if Jesus literally rose from the dead, then those who say that he didn't, they're wrong. 
But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, those of us who say that he did, we're wrong. So it's either or. It's an either or situation in in that uh scenario and the same thing is true with God either God exists or he doesn't we, we can't all be right and uh, this is a very uncomfortable thing especially when we're talking about worldview analysis but right. in reality um, not everybody can be right at the same time right right yeah so in the book right below all that we have we have self-defeaters you want to touch on that just real quick yeah, absolutely. Good point. Uh, self-defeat. So when we're evaluating logic, uh, when we're evaluating truth statements, a good way to see whether or not something is true or not is to see whether the, the claim can stand on its own merit. So for instance, if I were to say to you, I cannot speak a single word of English, that would be a self-defeater. Because I just spoke several words of English. Um, If I were to say that uh, there's absolutely no such thing as truth, well, what can we say then? Well, is that statement true? Yeah. Do you know that to be true? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or or how about this one? Anyone, this is is mentioned in the book too, anyone who mentions God is an idiot. Well, guess what? I just mentioned God. (laughs) You just you just mentioned God. Yeah. 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 So I mean, it it turns itself around. Um, There there is one I use here in the book, and the tenth one. This is, and with all due respect to the late Stephen Hawking's, it says Albert Einstein even said that that scientists often make very poor philosophers. But uh, Stephen Hawking said in his book uh, The Grand Design that philosophy is dead. Okay, this this takes a little work if, to really think about this. Okay, e- any philosophical but that, statement, but that's, a, but that's a philosophical statement. Exactly, this is not something that can be tested by the scientific method. He's using a philosophical claim to claim that philosophy is dead. So, if philosophy is dead, then how would he even know it? Because if we can't know anything philosophically, then we couldn't know that philosophy was dead. So, there again, that statement just turns itself on on its heels, uh, and it can't stand with by its own merit. So, that's a, a amazingly, Curtis, whenever I first learned this and went back to read some of the books and things that had uh, challenged my faith back in the late 90s, early 2000s. When I went back and used these tactics, I began to realize that all of those things, or not all of them, but most of the things that had uh, led me astray could not stand on its own merit. Fantastic. Uh, And and quite honestly, I'm not going to say that's the way with all atheist arguments, because it's not. I mean, there are some very intelligent atheists out there and who make very good, you know, very good uh, arguments. But I would dare say nine times out of ten, from what I have seen, most secular uh, and naturalistic arguments fall flat on their face. This is this is even why um, Thomas Nagel, who is not a Christian, wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, and he states in this book that naturalism is almost certainly false. Now, and, and I'm wondering myself as, as I was reading through some of his material, why doesn't he become a believer in God? 
because it's just right there, but he just doesn't make that step over across the threshold. But he shows the fact that naturalism is, is quite honestly a dead philosophy, and he realizes this. And so, um, so anyhow, I mean, I, I think this is showing the the the, uh, uh, the, the ends to which uh, naturalism, the naturalistic philosophy, leads, and, and it doesn't lead to, it doesn't lead to good ends. It leads to very bad ones. Right. right, and and when you learn, we we call this you know common sense um, in in some of it. I mean, some of this is a little deeper, you know. Uh, but when we understand how to think correctly, we can learn how to speak correctly, yes. which then helps people understand what we're talking about and be able to then communicate. We can communicate. This is, you know, goes back to, uh, well, like Nate Sala in, uh, in their podcasts and stuff there, they, they focus a lot on being able to speak clearly to people mm-hmm. and to you know as christians we we need to learn how to speak well to uh, you know talk about this stuff yeah absolutely and it's like and it's kind of, and, and we really see the the outcropping of where bad thinking leads i, I like mm-hmm. something that jonathan stone street of the colson center said recently he said that we as christians have to learn how to chew gum and walk at the same time because it's it's like we go to these radical ends, and it's not only true of Christians; it's true of all people in our nation. Well, most people in our nation, not all. Um, that that we we go to these radical ends. For instance, it's almost as if people have made and they have deduced, or or they believe that if you stand opposed to racism then you're a social justice warrior, a liberal social justice warrior who wants to see socialism brought in the nation. So some people have jumped to that degree. And obviously that's inherently false. It is possible to stand against injustice, to stand against racism, while at the same time not enjoining yourselves to organizations that are based on secular uh, socialist doctrine. And, and yes, there are those out there, and we need to be aware of that. Uh, but but you don't have to go to... You don't have to to uh, dump the baby out with the bathwater when making these stands. And again, as, as Stone Street said, we have to learn how to chew gum and uh, walk at the same time. And I think part of the problem is is that we are not, as American people, thinking logically about things. Right. Yeah, and I, I think... Um how can I put this? I, when I talk to, like for example, when I talk to my son, when when we're talking about what we see going on in the culture today, is is like I've, I've talked to him. I've said what you're witnessing and seeing is emotion over reason, and so exactly. we're not we're not able to think reasonably. We're thinking on our emotion. And that emotion is driving us to a point that that we we totally missed we totally miss what was needing to be thought of rationally. And and as the late Norm Geisler has said, and I think he's absolutely right that that a Christian with a with a clear mind and a pure heart is dangerous to the devil. And yeah. and we as Christians have done a horrendous job neglecting 
intellectual aspects of the faith. And that's why, quite honestly, that, that we've lost a hearing, I think, in, in popular culture. But, oh, oh, absolutely. You, you know, it, and, and and here again, you know, I, I, we, we can stand against injustice, but we don't have to go burn down entire communities uh, to, because of that. I mean, so there's a balance with this. And, and you're absolutely right. A lot of this has to, that comes from when our emotions steers our thinking, but our thinking should be steering us. Let our minds do what our minds are created to do, and let our hearts do what our hearts are created to do. When our hearts guide our brains and our brains guide our hearts, that brings out bad issues. It brings out mm-hmm. bad problems, as we've seen throughout the course of history. Right, right. And I think, um, I cannot remember who said this, but um, they, they were saying that um, who's to blame for the way the culture is today? And, and he says it's the church. The church has not learned how to think and speak with the heart and mind of God. Yes, I, and I think you're right. And I, and I think, and quite honestly, going back and looking at the history of where we are now, it, it uh, it's, it's really like that old uh, imagery of the story or the illustration I gave it last Sunday. It's a uh, of, of of a frog that if you if you take a frog and you put him in water that's already boiling, he's going to jump away immediately. Right, but if you, absolutely. But if you put him in water and you barely turn the heat up gradually, he's going to adapt to his surroundings, and he'll get to the point where if you turn it up high enough or hot enough that he may have adapted so much that he can't escape the the steam around him and he'll eventually die. And I think that's what we've seen throughout the course of our history, um, that we have been on a trajectory for quite some time that's been away from the heart and mind of God. And um, I, think, I think we're beginning to see, I think this is only the beginning, quite honestly. We're, we're seeing right now what comes... And this is even something that the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche warned us would happen. That when yeah. you remove God, you, you brought before uh, you bring forth nihilism and in a, in a culture where nothing matters. And I think we're seeing that very thing happening before our eyes. Right. Yeah, and I think we we're now seeing, you know, the 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 so to speak, the you know, if you think about that 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 imagery that you gave with the frog you turn the heat up barely um that's those incremental changes that the culture has made on the church rather than the church making on the culture 10 20 years ago if you'd have said the things if you'd have told us that the church would have been believing or saying or speaking from the pulpit the things that are being said today there would have been people saying there's no way oh yeah now now it's willingly accepted the things that are being said. Just just read the book of Judges. The book of mm-hmm. Judges shows exactly what happens to a culture. I mean, th- th- this has happened before in history. Um, when a culture yeah. turns away from God, it becomes more and more depraved. Yep. And, and, each, and each judge you see uh, coming out in the book of Judges gets gradually worse and worse and worse. The culture gets worse. The judges get worse. That's what happens when a culture leaves God, and and they don't interact with the culture around them. Right, right. And you go into Solomon, and he says, 
there's nothing new under the sun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. yep. So we got uh, we got a little bit of time left. Do we want to go into some questions we received on Bellator Christie? Well, I'll tell you what, before we do, I've got uh, three kind of argumentations I'd, I'd like to kind of go through. This isn't in the book. Um, I, I've been I've I've had the pleasure of uh, having Dr. David Baggett as a professor of um, of uh, moral apologetics this past week and 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 really as we we continue the class throughout the summer, um, and 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 I want to I want to mention this because I think this is important because there are different ways that we can come to conclusions, and some of this as you and I were talking before the podcast is just good common sense. So, for instance, the syllogisms that we were mentioning a while ago is just one form of argumentation. It's called deductive reasoning. And deductive reasoning presents statements that are true to bring forth a logical conclusion, what is assumed to be the case about the necessary uh, conditions or the conclusions of the statements brought before. So the syllogisms are an example of a deduction. But there's also another type of argumentation called induction. And induction uses known facts to present the likelihood of a conclusion being true. Uh, so, for, inst- for instance, uh, l- let's use this example. A lady named Sally hasn't been in her math class, but Sally has been seen in history class. So what does that tell us the most likely case is about Sally? Most likely, Sally dropped her math class and picked up a history class. So we don't know that with certainty, but we can induce that from from the observations, from from the from the things that we know to be true. Uh, for instance, a, a, another in, induction we could do is uh, that a business has been closed for a month. The business, secondly, the business has had money problems in the past. Then we could so therefore we could induce that the business must be bankrupt or must be out of business. So it's been closed for a while. This had many problems in the past. We don't see anyone there. We don't know it with certainty, but we can induce from that that the business must be out of business or it must be bankrupt. Doctor Baggett, um, he advocates for the use of a third type of argumentation known as abductive reasoning or abduction. Now, he's not talking about kidnapping somebody here. He's talking about abductive reasoning. And what this does is it begins with a set of observations and builds a cumulative case from those inferences to a logical but uncertain conclusion. So you may not know it with any certainty, but you can you can adduce that these things are most likely going to be the case. So, for instance, say, Curtis, you and I, we're, we're hanging out, and uh, you go out and check on the ranch. You come back in. Your clothes are wet. Your your shoes are wet. Uh, your hat is wet, but it's dry inside. So, I don't know with any certainty, but I could adduce that it must be raining outside you know, for, for you to be that wet. Now, it could be someone sprayed you with a hose, but say, I mean, say there's no one out there with a hose. You know, uh-huh. you're out there, you know, you come back, you're out there, and you come back within a few minutes. You know, I, I, it's easily, you could easily adduce that it must be raining outside. Uh-huh. Or say, for instance, you and I, Curtis, are playing a, a game of pool or billiards, you know, we, however you call it. 
So we're playing eight ball. Uh, Curtis is uh, is is about to play. He's 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 run the table and he has a clear sight. He's a good pool player, and uh, he hits the cue ball and the eight ball is moving to the corner pocket. Curtis is a good player, so I could deduce that Curtis is going to beat me in a game of pool. I don't know it with certainty, but I could deduce that. Or, for instance, you're on a jury. You believe a defendant is guilty because of the evidence, but you don't know for sure. But you can build a courtroom case from all the evidence. You weren't there. You don't know with any certainty. But the probability is really good that this person is guilty. So abduction, in many cases, is like that courtroom type of evidence that we use uh, in, in, uh, in, in legal systems. He, he brings a case to say... Dr. Baggett does, that abductive reasoning is really good when engaging people because we don't necessarily have to be crass with that person. We can say the best evidence suggests that Christianity is true. We don't have to say, well, you're just a heathen going to hell if you don't believe this. But what you can say is the best evidence suggests this to be true, and that builds relationships by doing it in that fashion. Now, I believe we can use all three methodologies, but um, I think there's a place for abductive reasoning. And in fact, I'm not so sure that this. I'm not. I'm not I, I really think Dr. Baggett has a point that uh, when we're dealing with skeptics, that maybe we need to use a little abductive reasoning to, to present our case, hearing what they have to say. Uh, it's not charging them with anything like that, but, but building relationships. And building a case with a cumulative, uh, with all the evidence at our disposal. Right. So, would an example of of this kind of reasoning be, um, like uh, in in First Corinthians fifteen, um, where Paul is going through all of the all of the statements uh, that Christ rose from the dead, and that and he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 500 so you could say because jesus appeared to the 500 therefore jesus has risen absolutely and i think that's abductive reasoning and i think what he's doing in in, in the creed in the early part and, I, and that's very wise assessment uh he, he's using he's using abductive reasoning saying that jesus has appeared as you've been told from the earliest times he is he has appeared to all of these people he appeared to 500 people at one time. Most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go talk to one of them. So he's showing that Jesus' resurrection is the best, uh, it, it, it answers the best evidence that's available. The evidence leads to Jesus being risen from the dead. It's the best explanation for, for the changed, transformed lives of individuals. It's the best information uh, uh, for for uh, so many people seeing him alive at one time, not just on one occasion, but several occasions. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think he does use abductive reasoning there. But on the inter- but the interesting side is that he also uses deductive reasoning later on because he says either Jesus is risen from the dead or he isn't. If he yeah. if he hasn't been risen from the dead, we're still in our sins and people must be pitied. But if he has risen from the dead, then then we have something to celebrate and it changes everything. Right. Right. Yeah, and and I can't I can kind of see that through what you're talking about. I can see that through 
this this conversation with the with First Corinthians, you can First Corinthians fifteen that you can see he's actually using all three within that. Yeah, Paul is just an incredible. It, well, in fact, I think Jesus in in Jude and James. I think they. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. I can't imagine having Jesus as a brother if you're Jude or James. I mean, can you imagine Mary saying, "Well, why don't you be like your brother Jesus?" Well, he's the Son of God, you know. That yeah. that helps. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, when you read the letter of Jude, you read the letter of James. Uh, you see that these guys were were well trained in the Word, and I think Jesus was as well. But when you look at Paul, Paul is just he has an amazing mind. Yeah. He, he's yeah. using philosophy. He's using all kinds of different argumentation. Jesus does as well in his teachings. Uh, but just absolutely amazing, phenomenal aspect uh, to consider about all the different ways that Paul presents the arguments that he does. Just an amazing man. Right. right. Awesome. Well, I think that's some. That's a lot of information for us to kind of think on and, and uh, chew on for a little while. Absolutely. Yeah. So you want to get into those questions? Sure thing, absolutely. Okay. So where do you want to start with first? Well, let's let's, let's go to our friend Apple Mango. Uh, Apple okay. Apple has uh, asked a bunch of questions. We'll go ahead and begin with uh, Apple Mango. Okay. How, uh, good so fruit go there. To, okay. So I'll start with um, uh, the one the one question um, that he uh, asked. That that's, doesn't have two parts to it. Um, it says, uh, what are some ways that we can use to distinguish false miracles from true miracles? And here we go. I, I believe, you know, we start out with this. Um, let's get a definition. So we ask the question, what do you mean by miracles? And uh, I think we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a good point. Uh, you know, and this and this, all of these questions would could be podcasts in and of themselves, and maybe we need to do a podcast on these different topics. I, I think uh, they bring up some wonderful, um, wonderful questions. I think miracle by miracles, we're talking about uh, a, a supernatural intervention on the natural world. Um, I do think some normal circumstances could be considered miracles, but but I believe Apple Mango is talking about these uh, amazing events that take place that can't be explained by nature alone, and so um, you know we we understand that the devil has power to do things, and we we understand the Book of Revelation, then the end times that he's going to try to deceive many by false miracles. Um, I think one of the things that we find when it comes to miracles um, is that when God does a miracle, there's usually a reasoning behind it that will glorify himself and transform individuals for the better. Um, For instance, I I think that uh, you could say that uh, as an example, and there's much more we could say on this too, and I'm being I'm being very gen, using being very generalized in this matter, but um, for for instance, um, people in the Middle East, all across the world, are having visions of Jesus. Um, they're coming to faith in Christ because of these visions. They were going down another realm. They were going down another path, but all, all of a sudden, they were transformed 
by these visions. Same thing with near-death experiences. I've heard people say that these near-death experiences are tools of Satan. Well, if if they're tools of Satan and people are coming to Christ, then Satan is using a lousy, lousy strategy to yeah, influence people. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very lousy strategician, you know, or tactician, I guess you'd say. Um, so, so I think that miracles from God are very transformative, um, and, and I think, quite honestly, miracles from God are, are genuine. I don't know that necessarily that all the miracles, so-called miracles of Satan, are genuine. I think he uses a sleight of hand. He's a master of deceit. So um, I think another thing you could see is that God brings redemption. Satan brings oppression. So um, those are some things, very general, generally speaking, that I would say use to answer that right. question. Yeah, and I kind of I kind of classified that under um, under the fruit, the fruit yes. of what you see coming out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so let's move into his next question, and I, I kind of think we can answer both of these questions in in one, in kind of a, maybe a, a deeper, longer answer. But the first question is, is it correct to state, say that some of the ethics and morals of the Old Testament unethical, immoral, for example, divorce and polygamy? And number two of that question, of that of his question, how would you respond to someone who says that the fact that ethics and morals of New Testament are perfect and are better than at least some of the ethics and morals of the Old Testament shows that at least some of the ethics and morals of the Old Testament are unethical or immoral? Okay, I, I, th I think here we have to, this is a multifaceted question that... Um, yeah has several different aspects that need to be covered. One thing I would say from the get-go is uh, it, I would recommend Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? He, he deals with this in great detail, uh, looking at the Old Testament laws in, in, in far more depth than what we'll have time to do on today's podcast. Right. But, but first and foremost, I would say that we have to understand in the Old Testament law, there are three kinds of law. There are laws that are ceremonial that have to do with the religion of the day. Now understand, they are typologies, they're symbols of a better thing that's to come in the future, a better atonement that's to come in the future, which is found in Christ. Some people have even argued that the tabernacle, the, the temple, is a, a representation of heaven, the throne of God. So it, it's symbolic in some fashions that way. So you have ceremonial laws. You have civic laws. Civic laws have to do with space and time of that present day and age. And then we also have moral laws. When you're reading the Old Testament, you need to see why the law is there. Sometimes it's evident, sometimes it's not. But the moral law is the transcendent objective good or the objective moral that's being presented in that. So as New Testament Christians, as we're reading back upon these laws... We need to see what is the moral behind what's being said. And quite honestly, we have to understand that just... we. I think part of the answer is understanding the permissive will of God. 
And this is something we've discussed. Uh, it's really appropriate to talk about this now because we were discussing this in class this past week, that a good holy God may allow things that are less than ideal to bring about a greater good. And you, and you see instances where commands are given to wipe out certain towns. Well, first of all, we have to understand, as Paul Copan shows in his book, that these communities we're talking about, like Jericho and other communities like this, these were military outposts, okay, military outposts. Um, there are other things we could say on this. Um, as it pertains to divorce, polygamy, things of this nature, Jesus says in the New Testament that God permitted these things, although it was not his desire for them to be that way, he permitted it because of sin. So we have to understand the permissive will of God that because he's allowing something to happen doesn't mean it is his, his desire or what the way he even created the world to be. But these are things that had to be done for that particular time going back to the ideal uh, of the way things are supposed to be. Um, but as the late Ravi Zacharias said, and I saw on a meme this past week, if we could learn how to keep ten lines on tablets of stones found in the Ten Commandments, then we wouldn't need 17,000 pages of law that we have on the books now, even in our own nation. Um, right. So we have a lot of laws in our own land, quite honestly. Some make sense, some don't make sense. But the reality is, is they're, they're given for a particular reason. Some of these laws, we may not know the reason for them. Others, we might. But uh, in the end, I think what we see through this is God's permissive will uh, pointing us to a greater ideal, which is found in Christ and in the community of faith that we know of as, as uh, being pe part of the people of God. All right. And one other, I guess, some things I would like to add to that is sure. um, we've got to be cautious when we're reading the text that we don't um, that we pay attention to the the who who and what the this material was written to at that time and what it was documenting um, but we also got to understand um, that culture of the time where polygamy was going on that was common in in the world of that time period and you look at the scriptures even though in those in those cultures it was common going on outside of Judaism or outside of outside of the biblical narrative there there's many of that going on but when the bible is recording um polygamy multiple wives it's 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 never good it's always a bad a bad result it's it's always some sort of you know, chaos within, or something happens um, in inside of that. Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, in fact, e that. even the documentation of polygamy shows why you shouldn't do it. Because, mm -hmm. take for instance the example of the of the days of our live showdown between Sarah and Hagar that right. happened. I mean, Ishmael right. and Isaac they had a rivalry that developed into one of the longest lasting family feuds that we've seen throughout history. The Arab, yeah, the, the, yeah, the war between the Arabs and and uh, and Jew, Jewish people that all right. stemmed from a family feud that operated from polygamy. So, what we see is an example of what not to do. <laughs> quite honestly, right. honestly, uh, exactly. You know, so right. And then in the scriptures, talking about divorce, 
if you look at what the culture was around the the Jewish people of that time, around Israel or around the Hebrew nation of that time period, divorce was a common practice and could just be done at will and, and willy-nilly. But if you look at the way the scriptures are, God made provisions in there for protection for them women, uh, yeah. protection for for those uh, for those that have been uh, kicked to the side. And so what, what God's showing us is through these scriptures or through these stories is there's a better way. And you, the Hebrew people, are to show that better way, are to do that, to point people to me, to draw them in. Absolutely, and I and I think too we we have to understand when it comes to divorce, um, when you're dealing with people in sin, things get messy. Mm-hmm. And and I, and, I, and I am one. I mean, people have different opinions and whatnot, but I, I believe that that the allowance and permission of divorce in certain cases is not the ideal. It's not what God wants. But it's allowed to happen for protection of 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 the lady, and for and for instance, even in the uh, there are biblical reasons why divorce is permitted, um, especially in cases. Uh, Jesus gives the exception in Matthew's gospel when there's adultery going on. Uh, Paul gives an exception clause in um, in First Corinthians. I can't remember what the chapter is, but he talks about that. If a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, then the believer is free. I think you can make a strong case that God uh, permits divorce to happen in instances where uh, there's there's spousal abuse going on. I, I think you can make that case. Um, so that's but that's the amazing thing about God is that He is patient with us. And, and he exhibits grace. And, and a lot of times, we, we, we as people, we want to see, we think we want ultimate justice. And the question was even asked um, once before. I was a part of a, of, a, of a conference on the problem of evil, a, a, a roundtable discussion is what it was. And the question was asked, why doesn't God just eradicate all evil? Well, here's the thing. If God eradicated evil, he'd eradicate all of us. Because yeah, all, there's right. no one, there's no one righteous. No, not one. The Bible tells us. Right. Right. So yeah. you know, it's easy for us to point. I mean, I'm not saying this is what Apple Mango is doing because I, I don't think this is the case at all. And and please uh-huh. don't take it this way. But I think so many times we want to point the finger at other people and look at their sin. When in reality, we need to be looking at ourselves to see where we are in our walk right. with the Lord. And um, but yeah, that's not what Apple Mango is doing. And I don't intend that to, to even apply. Right. But uh, I think that's that's what happens sometimes, right? And and I was just going to kind of capitalize on that moment there, also, just to point out, um, if 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 a person brings up this, um, well, the Old Testament is unethical and immoral, and you can simply pull back and ask the question, well, where are you basing your ethics and where are you basing your morals off? Of? Oh, absolutely. So that that that. That's an apologetic move that you could do. My suggestion is that you're schooled up with that, so you understand how to explain through that. And the Bible tells us in First uh, John. First John gives some great metaphors about God, saying that God is love. 
he also says God is light. Now, I believe that God exhibits light when we see manifestations of, of theodicies throughout the Scripture. It is brilliant light that God exhibits. But I think that he's also talking metaphorically. That, speaking of light being the good, he says you know, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, which means God is the ultimate good. There's no evil in him whatsoever. So if that's the case, and being a non-Calvinist, I also would say that God desires to save people. And so through Genesis to Revelation, you see God's evangelistic campaign to bring people to himself so that people would not be condemned to an eternity without him. Um, right. So I think, that's part of, I think that's part of it, too. Right. But you're right. I mean, yeah. without God... There is no standard of, of mor- morality whatsoever. Right. Well, we got another one, um, another question, and you know, and please understand those that those that do write in and, and do this. If if there's if you need a little more clarification, um, just email us in, and and uh, we can kind of work through some of that with you and help and help uh, explain that a little deeper. Absolutely. So number uh, the other one is. Um, by Alex Smith, um, he said, uh, "Would you please explain Romans fourteen six? I'm having trouble understanding this verse. So, shall I read fourteen six? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, fourteen six. I'm going to read it out of the ESV just because that's what I have in my hand here. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats." eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So it says he's having trouble understanding that. And I kind of would, I kind of would like to touch on this, Brian, you know, um, that what's important here is to grasp that this what this verse is saying is sometimes we we got to follow the the law or the rule that that Greg Kokel actually has put out there very well and I and I agree is we don't just read a Bible verse we cannot read a Bible verse we have to read Bible a larger verse. section Absolutely. so so my suggestion is to go verses before read all the way through to get the flow of what's being said and sometimes we have to read that whole uh, that whole section. So fourteen, we have to read the whole whole section there to really get the flow of it. And sometimes you actually have to go back, even get a few chapters beyond forward and backward of it to really get the grasp of what's going on. And sometimes you even have to read the whole, uh, really the whole section of body of scripture right there to really get what's going on. So it's important that we understand. How to how to actually get through this and read through the Bible? So you, using that very tactic, if we were to go back up to verse one, uh, saying you know, except anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, and this is talking about dietary uh, aspects. Remember that uh, the New Testament church went from, from, from the dietary laws of Judaism now to opening things up uh, to eat more things than what were, was previously permitted. Uh, one person believes he may eat anything, uh, while one who is weak eats only vegetables, a vegetarian. 
they, they need some of Curtis's cattle to, to have a better diet. <laughs> yeah, they need but, to balance out. Yeah, there you go. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. And then he goes on in verse 5, One person judges one day to be more important than the other day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord. So in this case, uh, the, the observance of the day is talking about special days of observance. Yeah, like Shabbat. Um, Shabbat, yeah. And so, so even now, uh, there are some people... Who who keep uh, Old Testament festivals, uh, and that's right. great. There are other Christians who don't, and that's fine too. So I think what Paul is saying is there was a disagreement that broke out in the church. Some people may have still kept Shabbat, or they may have still kept uh, Hanukkah, whereas others only only adhered to Easter or something like that. Right. right. And what he's basically saying, the main gist of this passage is is he saying that we as Christians have liberty in this regard. The grace of God grants us liberty. If you desire to keep these dietary laws, by all means do them. If you want to observe certain days, the days that you had in past, what he's saying to the Romans, keep doing it. But if you don't feel that you need to, you know, you have the freedom to live your life according to the grace of God. And I think that's what he's really talking about. Uh, Some people were looking down at other people because they did or they didn't observe certain days or they did or they didn't eat certain types of food. And he said, listen, it's the grace of God that saved us. That's the most important thing. Right. Right. And I guess I kind of think also, um, think of Peter on 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 the rooftop when he gets the vision and it says you know all these animals in this in this blanket and he and he says now kill and eat peter and and peter says lord i i i have i keep the dietary laws and it, it says what i've already made clean you kill and eat and man aren't and, you glad, aren't you glad of that because now we can eat bacon i know yeah i'll take it every day yeah that's hilarious, yeah. But, you know, really, truly, I mean, you see this um, also um, when, you know, the, you, basically you're talking about people that, um, because it, this the church started out, and it still is today, but the church at that time started out as um, Gentiles and, and Jewish believers in Jesus all coming together as one, and that's really where this... Um, I guess you could say the 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 pole of disagreement kind of started in here is because these guys came in from a secular worldview and are looking at Jesus as oh, okay, well, he's the Messiah, so that's all we got to do is believe that. And you have the Jewish believers that still hold to those traditions and are looking to those, saying, "Well, why aren't if if we're doing this, why aren't they doing that?" And and Paul's saying, "Hey, look." You all believe in the same thing. And if you feel that that's connecting you to God, then keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But but don't don't put that demand or burden on them because we're free in Christ. 
Absolutely. Colin Cruz adds to this uh, a, a statement. Uh, he, he says that we may think that Paul is anticipating the famous saying of John Donne, uh, who lived in the 1500s, who, said, who wrote the following. He says, No man is an island entire of itself. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom, uh, for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So what he's essentially saying is that we're all in this together. That, that we shouldn't look down upon another person because of the certain convictions they may have. Some people may have certain convictions one way, others may not. And boy, could we not, as Christians today, not learn a valuable lesson from that, from that truth that Paul presents in Romans 14. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and I'm thankful that uh, Alex Smith brought that out because it gave us a chance to really kind of uh, dice through that but also show, um, show how to uh, read that um, in its context. Absolutely, most certainly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, this has been a, just a, a fantastic podcast. We've been able to um, answer some questions and engage with some people. And uh, please feel free to write in. I mean, we enjoy this. That's that's definitely what what this is for. Um, we try to bring, um, like it says in the in the layman's manual, uh, it says bring in the essentials of apologetics of from the ivory towers. Uh, to the everyday Christian and so we, we want to be able to have these discussions with you and we are definitely thankful Absolutely. so I think we're going to we're going to shut this podcast down and we thank you so we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and value, we value your time our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Pelotor Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash bellatorchristie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. 
This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristi.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.